0: and I wanted to make sure that every single snake in our collection was Nido negative. So everything that was here when Cinnamon Bun and Darth were here has been tested multiple times and everything that came in as a juvenile afterwards, which would only be, uh, I think three or four snakes, maybe sprinkles came in, but for sure, Cookie and Licorice, my two Exanthics and Tangerine, my most recent Calico. You do
1: have, you do have good names. this is episode number 145 of the animals at home podcast my name is Dylan Perrin and thank you so much for tuning in today Today I'm speaking with Kayla from the Instagram account Joob Joob and Friends. You may be familiar with the account as she has quite a few followers at this point. I think it's getting close to 70,000 or so. Kayla is a ball python keeper and we have quite a range of discussion on this podcast but it can really be broken down into two separate pieces. The first half of this discussion we talk about Serpentovirus and Nidovirus. Kayla walks us through a sort of heartbreaking, I shouldn't say sort of, a very heartbreaking experience she had with the virus. She learned about the virus the hard way. She talks about the symptoms and, and what we can do about this problem. We discuss how pervasive Nidovirus or Serpentovirus is within herpeticulture and some of the evidence to support that claim. And we also discuss the t- testing facility that Kayla helped establish in Canada. Now, for those that don't know, obviously many people are familiar with Fishhead Labs, which is a commonly used testing facility in the United States. Now, we did not have a testing facility in Canada up until this point, which meant if you wanted to have your animals tested at Fishhead Labs, you would have to go through all the CITES paperwork just to send a swab across the border. Obviously that is not practical and that's very expensive. So Kayla, along with Fishhead Labs, was able to establish a testing facility at the University of Guelph. So she talks about that process as well. So that is a super important, highly valuable part of this conversation. And the second half of the conversation, we get into a sort of an experiment that Kayla's been running for about two and a half years with her ball pythons at home. And the experiment is simply she's keeping them in much larger enclosures than's typically recommended. She has purchased a Freedom Breeder rack, which is built for boas. So it's a very large drawer system with plexiglass clear fronts. I think they she said they're 50 inches long by 30 inches deep. So they are quite a large space for one as far as racks are concerned. And she talks about how her ball pythons are doing there, if they're thriving, if they're failing. And we discuss some of the negative feedback she's received, particularly from, you know, the classic hardcore breeders what their opinion of what she's doing is and you know it's kind of shocking to hear some of the some of the, the things, that she the messages she gets and, and the, the, the accusations she gets about what she's doing with your animals is unethical to keep them in large enclosures. Now, it's funny because the people listening to this podcast would not find that to be a massively large enclosure and for, for most people listening to this podcast, it's instinctive to keep their animals in as large of enclosures as possible, but there's a whole other side of the hobby that sees that as an attack and it sees that as unethical and unsafe for the animal. So, it really shows how far apart those two sides of the hobby are and Kayla is a perfect person to sit between both communities because she sees both sides and we really discuss the difference between breeders and pet keepers and where pet keepers are wrong and where breeders are wrong and where we can kind of mend those bridges together and and like I said Kayla has a very good grasp on both sides of the coin and we talk about you know how we can move forward as a community in order to make the lives of the animals better which is exactly what I think I hope most people who keep animals should be striving for, right? We should always be striving for keeping the animals in a better condition and, and making their their husbandry and their care conditions or living conditions better. And if I assume that's what we all want. So we discuss how we might make that possible. If you are interested in learning more about this episode of the podcast, head to animalsathomenetwork.com. There you can find the show notes for every episode that ever has been released. If you would like to join us on Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash animalsathome. Thank you so much to Custom Reptile Habitats for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you are interested in a new reptile enclosure, make sure you head to the YouTube description or the show notes. There you'll find an affiliate link, which if you do make a purchase, a small commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you. There is quite a lot different things within the show notes in this episode because Kayla does mention quite a few links and things so I'm going to make sure that's as full as possible and if you are listening to the audio only version Kayla does provide lots of videos and pictures and whatnot which will not impact your ability to listen to the podcast but you may want to come back to the video version on YouTube when you get a chance and just scrub through the video to see some of those photos and I think that is it let's jump into this episode it's a good one I know you will enjoy it if you did enjoy it make sure you please share it with the community around you, and I will see you guys
0: afterwards. Well,
1: Kayla, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for doing this.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I'm very excited to have this conversation. Uh, We uh, connected probably like years ago now at this point to originally discuss nidovirus, and we never got back around to it. And and so we're going to hit that today, and we're also going to discuss a whole other broader topic as well, which has kind of been bubbling up at the surface just recently, maybe not recently, but it's been a little bit more drama than, than recently. So we'll we'll talk about that as well. But I I want to get your background. I want to understand how you got to where you are today. So what, what originally got you into reptiles?
0: All right. Well, um, so I run Jube and Friends, which is Jube the snack on Instagram, which already annoys a lot of people (laughs) just because of the name. But, um, I've been in the industry for about five or six years now. I always say that it's longer because I started out in aquatics. So, um, I used to breed and keep fancy goldfish like Ryukin and pearl scale. And then that was fun, but you can't touch them. You can't pet them. You can't do things with them. So I moved over from aquatics into ball python keeping and ball pythons, uh, there's no, not really a good story to it. <laughs> I kind of just saw a lot of memes of them online, uh, especially from this one group called Snack the Hissing Booth. Um, so they would always post cute ball Python memes. And I was like, man, I really need one of those. They're super adorable. And then I ended up buying Juju.
1: <laughs> so pretty, pretty straightforward. Uh, so, so that's interesting because I, I imagine that's where some of the the drama is associated just with uh, like you said, even the handle on the Instagram page makes people mad and, and that those sort of like, you know, cutesy memes can sometimes make people mad. So when you first, how did you go about getting your first ball python?
0: So I was kind of aware of the reptile hobby, but not really. Uh, so in Canada, as you're aware, we have uh, this like classified site called Kijiji. It's almost the same as Craigslist in the U.S., And I went on there and I searched up ball python breeders because I don't typically like buying my snakes from pet stores. I don't really like getting any of my pets from pet stores. (laughs) So I searched up a ball python breeder and someone local to me popped up and they were selling some of their retired breeder males. And I sent them a message and I said, look, I don't really care about anything with the snake except that it's healthy and it has a good temperament. I said, I want something that's going to be a good intro animal. And he said, I've got the perfect one for you, but I want to come to your house and make sure that your setup is good, which I still keep in touch with Jube Joob Joob's breeder. Uh, he, he's like, I can't even believe how far you've taken this whole Jubejube thing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I actually didn't see Jube Jube before I bought him. He was bought sight unseen. So the breeder brought him to my house and, um, took a look at my setup. He okayed it and then he opened the tub and I saw Jube Jube and that was the first time. So it, it was pretty much love at first sight.
1: <laughs> it's pretty interesting even having a, a breeder being very con- conscientious of the, the care of the, where the animal is going because you don't actually hear that a lot. You, you know, breeders will send out care sheets and whatnot, but to actually make the step of coming over to your house to investigate your setup is pretty unique.
0: Yeah, he said that Jubjub was actually one of his original snakes that he had had okay. and started off his like breeding journey, I guess. So he wanted to make sure that he was going to a good home and uh, everything like that. So when he came over, I had the, the typical starter pet keeper situation. I had done a little bit more research, though. So I had the ceramic heat emitter. I had the thermostat, uh, the cypress mulch, all the correct stuff like that. Uh, but of course it was the 36 by 18 by 18 Exoterra. Um, so he gave me the advice to cover the top with foil, um, just to keep the humidity in. And he, he was really great. He was honestly the, if you could have a perfect transaction with an animal that, that describes that.
1: <laughs> did he come with the name?
0: No, <laughs>
1: oh, you, you named him. Okay. How, how did you come up with that name?
0: Okay, I don't even know, man. I just love naming (laughs) them stupid stuff. (laughs) So um, my favorite goldfish, my favorite Ryukin that I had, his name was Gobbles. Um, So I already have a history of making, like creating really stupid names for them. And then I also had another favorite goldfish called Mr. Puddles. (laughs) So So,
1: Juju fit right in.
0: Yeah, Juju was kind of just I kind I don't know. I just named him after the candies and then I found out after that the candies are actually Juju or some shit and I'm like, "Okay. <laughs> Juju <Joob Joob laughs> works." So, so So then
1: so you got Juju and then how, how did because you sort of classify yourself as almost like a sanctuary for retired ball pythons, which is also a, a pretty unique kind of thing. Because we, there are a lot of those out there that you know need homes. So is that something that you decided to do pretty early on, or?
0: So I want to clarify right at the beginning that we've never been a rescue, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people interpret Jube and Friends as being a rescue. But every single one of the animals that I've gotten, I've gotten from breeders and I've paid for. So mm-hmm. I've never brought in, uh, you know, a rescue to rehabilitate it. Um, I've always felt that there's an inherent risk to my collection by doing so, and I just never have. But for me, the market is very saturated with these animals. Ball pythons are one of the most widely kept exotic pets in the industry. And there's so many older males that need homes. I just kind of thought, why not? You know, let's just bring them home. They, They can have the larger enclosures, have a good time. And, uh, with, with no worries, really no expectations, just come home, eat your food and enjoy yourself.
1: Mm-hmm. And how many do you have up to this point?
0: I have 10 right now.
1: Oh, you have 10. Okay. So you've just slowly added as you, have you found one that you might like, you just bring them in.
0: Correct. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, I, I want to talk about how you care for them and, and sort of your philosophy behind how you care for them, but maybe we'll, maybe we'll touch on the Nido stuff first, because that's, that's a really important topic we can maybe get that out of the way because it's, uh, you know, sad and important at the same time. So, and, and then we'll get into the sort of latter half of the discussion, but why don't you just tell us your experience with Serpentovirus or Nitovirus and, and were you aware of it before it came into your life?
0: No, so I'm a very big proponent now on testing your animals. And uh, I actually, along with Fishhead Labs, um, founded the testing at University of Guelph in Canada because we didn't have testing prior to all of this happening to me. And I think as unfortunate as it was that we ended up contracting Nidovirus in our collection, it did lead to something positive and it did lead to something where other keepers can now make sure that their collections are safe. But my story with Nidovirus is quite a long one. I did uh, do a a segment on the Hold Back Rack podcast with Jessica and Jana. Um, For the full story, I would suggest the viewers go take a listen to that. Mm-hmm. But long story short I'll make short, sure that's
1: in the show notes for everybody so people can just go right to that.
0: Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, long story short, though, we um, originally started out with Jubjub and Cinnamon Bun, who was my Pied. Those were kind of the first two snakes. And then we accumulated you know, a few more snakes. And up until the point where we had Nidovirus, we had about six or seven animals. And we had two of those animals test positive. So we have to think, I'm, I'm a non-breeding facility, and we had two out of maximum seven animals test positive for Serpentovirus, or as we'll call it here, Nidovirus. Those aren't good odds. So with the incredible amount of importing and exporting that's happening right now within the industry, Nidovirus is rampant. And I'm still getting people that are talking to me that don't know what it is they, they don't know how to test for it. They don't know how to look for it. So I feel like it's imperative that we get that information out there for people.
1: What caused you to test in the first place? And then how, how did you get that done without us having testing on this side of the border?
0: Yeah. So what happened was we had cinnamon bun, we had jub and we had these other snakes. Now we ended up in September of 2019, I believe, we brought in another snake named Darth. Now, Darth, uh, he went through the full quarantine. We never saw any issues with him except a little bit of increased excess saliva, which I did bring up to the breeder. He stated that uh, it was probably due to our humidity not being the same as in his facility. I was like, okay, cool. Uh, it's, It's not. But anyways, it never affected the snake. It was never like dripping mucus, anything like that so we had this snake since september of 2019 now we roll past the quarantine we put him in his own exoterra and we're trying to transition him from live to frozen thought because where he came from all of their snakes are on live and we only feed frozen thought so every single rejected feeder that he did not eat which was qu- quite a few of them uh, we fed to the pied cinnamon bun who was a snake that i had had for for a while before getting this animal in. And I, I didn't know, I had no idea that Nidovirus existed. I didn't even think that it was a thing. I thought that we were looking and quarantining for typical respiratory infection symptoms, RIs, as we'll call them in this video, and might. I thought that that's what we were quarantining for because that's, that's what everyone talks about, but that's not what happened. And we weren't just dangling the rat in with Darth we would blow dry it and we would physically leave it in his hide for an hour. And then if he didn't eat it, we'd take it back out, blow dry it again and feed it to the pod. So we had this fomite transition going from transmission, sorry, going from point A to point B and it's very easy to trace. So we kept pretty much blasting cinnamon bun with these rats that had fomites on it from Darth. And lo and behold, in uh, probably around spring 2020, I noticed that Cinnamon Bun was really lethargic and he wasn't displaying like RI symptoms or anything, but I, I told Kyle and I even made a post on my Instagram and I said, yeah, I can just see that Cinnamon Bun is is getting kind of old because he was in his late teens. And I said, I can kind of see him slowing down a little bit. And then in September of 2020, we got our big freedom breeder enclosures, which we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. But all of the snakes, I transitioned them into those larger enclosures. And I had a lot of reservations from breeders telling me that they were going to go off feed, that they were going to get sick, they were going to die. And lo and behold, my surprise when two of them did get sick, and it was cinnamon bun and darth. Now, Darth always kind of held the same, even though, even throughout all the medication, um, the the vet visits, everything, he never really plummeted, but cinnamon bun really tanked. And it's interesting to see how the same strain of Nidovirus affected both snakes completely differently. Mm -hmm. And it's the same as people getting colds, like you might get COVID and be completely fine, but... I might get COVID and I have varying factors like I'm an asthmatic. So it affects me differently than it would affect you. Mm -hmm. So I think that it was because cinnamon bun was older. He didn't have that immune system that Darth had as a younger animal. He, he was a 2016 and born, born in 2016, just to clarify. And, um, I think it just hit him really hard. So long story short, what ended up happening is I noticed that cinnamon bun went downhill very quickly. He had the excess mucus, the open mouth breathing, everything that you would typically see with a bacterial respiratory infection. And we took both of those animals, we quarantined them and immediately we took cinnamon bun to the vet because Darth wasn't as bad, so we took cinnamon bun first. And I actually didn't notice that Darth had anything wrong with him until like a week or two after cinnamon bun, just because he wasn't displaying it as well. So we took cinnamon bun first. We ended up going to campus estates veterinary clinic in Guelph. The vet there just didn't understand reptiles um, as well as she probably should have but she prescribed ceftazidime to us to be injected once every three days. And that was given for two weeks, but then she gave us an extra week dosage just in case it it didn't work. So it didn't work. The snake got progressively worse. So on week two, I actually moved vet clinics because I just didn't feel comfortable taking him back. Uh, I took him over to Waterloo West, which is about 10 minutes down the road from me. And the vet there, uh, he actually came, originally came from Florida, and he said that he had no idea how that animal was still alive. It, he said like, it, cinnamon bun was really bad. What happened was we took both cinnamon bun and Darth, and I wanted to do a bacterial culture on Darth mm. because uh, the vet said that we couldn't do it on cinnamon bun. He had already been medicated, and it would skew the results. So we did the bacterial culture on Darth, he had a little bit of elevated uh, flora in the mouth, natural flora, nothing out of the ordinary. So that vet prescribed them both Enrofloxacin or Baytril. So those snakes were on Baytril injections from October until December. And it was like a roller coaster. They would get better and then they would get worse and they'd get better and they'd get worse. And I was so frustrated at this point. I had no idea what was going on with these animals. The vets couldn't tell me. They had no idea. So I reached out to the individual who pretty much wrote the book on veterinary medicine, which is Dr. Stahl uh, in Virginia. Mm -hmm. And I reached out via email to Sieb's Vet Clinic. And I said, I'm in Canada and I don't know what to do. I need your help because I said, I can't get these animals to you, obviously, but I said, here's the medication schedule they've been on and they're not getting better and we don't know what to do. One of the vets there wrote me back and they said, you need to be testing those animals for Nido virus. And they said, it's coming through our clinic so much, even in the pet, the pet ball pythons. They said, we're just seeing it in almost every other snake. Is that so, the first
1: time you saw the word Nidovirus?
0: That was the first time. I'd seen uh, a lot of stuff for inclusion body or arena mm. virus, but hardly anything for Nidovirus. And that was the first time I, I had even heard of this. And she said, here's the contact information for Fishhead Labs. She said, you need to reach out to them and you need to get those animals tested. And so that's what I did. I reached out to Pia Pia Bartolini of Fishhead Labs and I said, my animals are in dire straits and I need your help. Uh, I don't know what to do. So she called me. We had a phone, huge phone conversation. Uh, we had to actually import and export the samples via CITES. So it was an extremely expensive and uh, difficult process. But I didn't care. I wanted to know. Like, these are, these are my pets. So we did it. And we initially sampled cinnamon bun, Darth and my dreamsicle popsicle, because he had came from the same facility that Darth had and popsicle came back negative, And the other two came back positive. So at that point, I remember calling Pia. Oh, it was like nine or 10 o'clock at night. And she was in her pajamas. <laughs> and I said, um, Dr. Susan Fogelson just sent me the results. And I said, uh, we have two positives. And I said, what does that mean? And she said, unfortunately, Nidovirus cannot be cleared. Um, she said, considering that both of these animals are symptomatic, she said, it's, it's your call. But she said, we would recommend, recommend humane euthanasia. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what I did the, the following day. I took the animals. I called up Waterloo West and had them euthanized.
1: Oh, that's a brutal experience.
0: Yeah, it it's one of the um, it's one of the saddest things that I've ever had to go through because I feel like um, as breeders. There's, you know, you have so many animals and you're used to a level of loss there, especially with hatchlings that don't come out correct or, you know, an animal that, that gets sick because it's stressed out or, or something like that. But for pet keepers, we're not used to any level of loss. We can't tolerate level of loss. Mm-hmm. So uh, it hits very hard when an animal passes away because that, that animal is like a family member.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry you had to go through that. And it's one of those things that is more common in in herpetoculture than we like to admit, right? Especially when in Canada, when you're sort of hung out to dry as far as testing goes back then, right? That is probably so frustrating because you just, especially because the vet clinics weren't able to even test for it. You know, that's kind of shocking.
0: When we took the snakes to to have them euthanized, um, because this was during COVID, this was in January of 2021, we had both the snakes euthanized. And I took them in and I showed them the, the positive Nidovirus results. And even that vet being from Florida, he was like, oh, I had no idea that Nidovirus w- was a thing in Canada. And I'm like, wow, what? <laughs> like, what? How are we not talking about this? This is such an issue.
1: Yeah, that is, that is crazy. So then did you, did you test your other animals as well? The ones that are still in your collection or...
0: Correct. Yes. So we actually spent the last two years testing and retesting our entire collection multiple times because, um, as much as people say, you know, oh, you can just get one test and they'll be fine and we'll figure it out. No, I'm a firm believer that these animals are in my care. I'm going to do what I need to do to protect all of them. And I wanted to make sure that every single snake in our collection was NIDO negative. So, Everything that was here when cinnamon bun and Darth were here has been tested multiple times and everything that came in as a juvenile afterwards, which would only be, uh, I think three or four snakes, maybe sprinkles came in, but for sure, cookie and licorice, my two xanthics and tangerine, my most recent calico. You do have,
1: you do have good names.
0: <laughs> um, though, those snakes have all had one nidovirus test okay. um, because of the situations that they came from, the breeders that they came from. Most of those breeders knew about the nidovirus stuff that I had gone through. Uh, Ball Brilliance, the breeder that I got the two exanthics from, he we had discussed me buying those snakes right out of the egg, so he actually had put them in a separate room. Uh, So I was not concerned about those animals. He said that there was such heavy biosecurity for him not mixing and matching those snakes in with any of his others. Um, Same with Sprinkles. Sprinkles came from a Canadian breeder, uh, Canadian Regis. He was actually a failure to thrive. So he was on his own anyways, because we didn't know if he was going to make it or not. Mm. Um, So as soon as he was eating consistently, off he went to me. So wasn't worried about him. And then Tangerine, uh, he was so young when I bought him, I wasn't really concerned about him either. But I did talk with the breeder about testing. I said, you know, is this something that you're okay with? And the breeder actually didn't know about Nido. So we had a full discussion when I was buying Tangerine about me testing him and uh, what would happen if he came back positive and and that stuff. Um, But yeah, he got tested in february or march and i had him in quarantine for quite a while and now he's in the main collection and everything's been fine so
1: jumping back can you define fomite for people just to sort of explain a little bit of how the transmission might work between the animals
0: so fomites are essentially the transmission from one snake to another of uh basically however the virus is carried so Mm -hmm. nidovirus isn't really transmitted, transmitted bah, 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 via airborne particles. Nidovirus is transmitted through fluids. So we have transmission via saliva, uh, heavy transmission via fecal matter and urates. So this is why it's so important to have good biosecurity, be washing your hands uh, after touching each animal and cleaning them or using hand sanitizer. Um, And, yeah, the saliva, even on the tongs, when you're feeding one rat to another, everything is covered, right? But it takes a certain level of fomite transmission to actually infect the other animal. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we're going to feed one rat and then the snake is going to be blasted with Nidovirus. That's not typically what's going to happen. What's going to happen is we have to have repeated exposure. And then eventually that animal will start to succumb to the virus.
1: Right. Yeah. So it's, I mean, those sort of general practices, a not mixing feeders, right? If you have a feeder that gets refused, that's got to go in the garbage, unfortunately, Uh, not using the same tongs, making sure that all the feeding and utensils hooks and everything is either separate for a quarantine room or you're doing some sort of like complete sterilization if you're using them amongst animals. Is there anything else that you do now in your quarantine procedure?
0: So my quarantine procedure lasts for about six months. If it's a juvenile, they'll get tested once, especially uh, if it's a juvenile where I know how they've been kept and where they're coming from. If it's a juvenile from like a larger facility where things are just getting mixed together and stuff like that, I would recommend two NIDO virus tests, one upon intake and one at the end of your six month quarantine period. If it's an adult, you need three tests. You need one at your intake, you need one at the halfway point, and you need one at the very end, especially if that animal's a retired breeder. Is this expensive? Yes. Are we paying hundreds uh, sometimes thousands of dollars. Like I've seen ball pythons go for like, you know, f- upwards of 50 to 100,000 dollars for a singular <laughs> yeah. snake. And people, people are like nervous about spending hundred dollars on a nidovirus test. and yeah, it's funny. I always say it doesn't matter whether this is a hundred dollar animal or whether it's a $50,000 animal. If, if you have pets, you want to make sure you're protecting your collection. And if you're a breeder, you want to make sure that you have a good foundation for your business. So the health of your animals, that's, that's the foundation. And if you start to build your business upon a foundation of sick animals, eventually it's going to just crumble down.
1: Yeah, because if you think about, if, if you let that, if you let your breeding operation get too far without doing any testing, then suddenly, if you do have an animal that suddenly, like your story, you know, hey, you, you sent me an animal with Nido and then that breeder has to go, wow, am I going to test? ten thousand or a thousand animals for example maybe not ten thousand maybe a thousand animals and if i am going to test them and they come back positive do i have to euthanize this entire operation so it, it puts them in a really it puts you in a really tough position if you don't start with a proper foundation like you said that's a perfect way of describing it
0: and it's hard now too um because I, i've spoken with the breeder that uh i got darth from there's been a resolution there and we've we've moved forward really positively um but i've spoken with him and he says you know i have two thousand animals what do i do because it's hundreds of thousands of dollars to test all these animals so at that point i just say uh disease mitigation is your best is your best way to go about it it's hard to test all of those animals if you have anything that's sick at that point you want to test those but for the most part it's hard you already have all of your established adults So I said, what you need to be doing is protecting the next generation because uh, Nidovirus does not transmit vertically. So the only time it would transmit vertically is if we have maternal incubation happening. And that's where you have the parent in direct exposure with the eggs because they're sitting on them. But if we take the eggs away, like we do 99% of the time, then we don't have that transmission. So those babies will hatch out and they'll be perfectly fine. So uh, a separation of the juveniles to the adults is paramount. And in my own personal collection, it's very rare that we bring in a lot of snakes. We maybe bring in like one to two per year. Uh, at this point, I'm, I'm kind of done. It <laughs> tends a lot for me, okay? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how people do like 200 of them or whatever. But um, for me, we have that six-month quarantine. We do the a uh, allotted amount of tests depending whether it's a juvenile or an adult and then it can be integrated into the main collection but I still make sure that that animal is done last until it has been here like even tangerine he's at the very top of my freedom breeder rack because that way if he breathes the air goes out the top it doesn't go on another one and mm-hmm. then he's actually my last snake to get done because he was my my last one to come in so It's just about, it's just about thinking ahead with this stuff. And I feel like we're not in a position any longer where it can just be, we're bringing in snakes, we're having a good time, like we're bringing in 20 a year. We can't do that. There has to be a little bit more thought process going into the safety of these animals and the security of your pre-existing collection.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's very well said. And then for us Canadians, maybe you could just quickly—you don't have to go through the whole story, but maybe you could just talk about how you were able to establish this testing facility at Guelph University.
0: For sure. So after the whole, uh, after I went public, and it took me a lot uh, to process about going public with this, because people view it almost as like an elephant in the room. It's it's a detriment to your collection if you have a viral infection. But as I always say, Nidovirus didn't originate with the breeder that I got the snake from. Nidovirus doesn't originate with me. Nidovirus is everywhere. And from Fishhead Labs, we have a statistic that every single collection that's been tested, almost 25% of the snakes have come back positive in each collection. Wow. That's, that's bad. So this is, this is not a me problem. This is a you and everybody problem. So after I went public with this, we started talking about it a lot and there was a lot of discussion and I was getting a ton of phone calls from, from breeders in the U S from breeders in Canada, people who had just never heard of it. And they wanted to know more details and they wanted to know how it presents. And I told them typically in a symptomatic animal, it presents as a respiratory infection, like a bacterial RI would. But I said, the scary thing is, is we have asymptomatic animals Mm -hmm. like Darth. Uh, who don't really present with anything, and they can be like that for years. And I always tell people the story about Pia's one snake. I think it was a green tree python, and she had it for many years, and it it had the highest viral load of any animal with Nidovirus in existence, and it was asymptomatic for its entire life. Never once showed a symptom, but it could transmit the virus to every single snake. And I call them plague walkers so I told people about these plague walkers and I said they'll sit in your collection you'll be taking a male and breeding it to all of these females and it just walks the virus right through the collection now some strains of nidovirus are going to be more prevalent than others so and again it'll affect every snake differently so some animals they might never show a sign and other animals, you'll you'll see snakes getting sick, you'll see some die, and you'll see some be okay. And even in a facility that has nidovirus, if we in an unrealistic situation took all of the animals and we just shoved them all together and and mixed them all in, and we were like, bah, kind of like with dough, like baking dough, mm-hmm. and we squish them all together, there would be some animals that still would not contract the virus. And we have that study from uh, Pia Bartolini and a bunch of other researchers who uh, they did a study on nidovirus. It's like the latitude and longitude of blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's on frontiers and I can send you the article so you can post it. Sure. But essentially what happened is we had 75% of the animals succumb to the virus. And then we had 25% of the animals that were infected, but they didn't. And those are the animals that are sitting in everybody's collection right now the 25% that don't. Right. So I got a lot of questions. What do we do about this? Because we're in Canada and we don't have the money to be sending CITES tests off and the resources too, because I'm a broker. It's a little bit easier for me, but for others, it's hard. And they said, what do we do? So it took almost a full year to get the Guelph stuff up and going, but, uh, Pretty much all of that was on Pia's end, so props to her. Uh, She did a great job coordinating everything. Uh, For me, I'm always just more so their educator. I'm not a vet. I'm not a vet tech. uh, But I can discuss the virus with people, discuss how to best manage it, and discuss how to properly do the tests. And that's that's pretty much my role in all of this, working alongside Fish Head Labs. So they got the tests up and rolling with Guelph. Guelph announced that it was a thing on their website. And now people can send in tests. Uh, all you do is swab your animal at home. I have a video up on JubeJube and Friends, again, that I can send you the link for, that shows you how to properly fill out all the paperwork and properly swab your animal. Uh, I show us swabbing a, a client snake. And you want to swab the coenal slit, which is uh, at the very roof of the mouth. You want to do that for 20 seconds. Then you're going to package your samples up, send them in, and you'll get results back within five to seven business days.
1: Okay, that's amazing. Yeah, and and congrats on helping that get into into existence because that is huge. And like you said, we can't all be sending CITES uh, vials across the border. That's too expensive and it makes so much more sense. And it's way more accessible. And hopefully this can people can start testing on a regular basis and we can start somewhat, you know, condensing this issue down to something that's hopefully maybe a little smaller in 10 years or so.
0: Agreed. And the great thing about this is, too, is people think that the um, the fee is expensive on the Fish Head Labs website. But I always tell people the fee encompasses all of your testing supplies and it also includes Dr. Susan Fogelson as your acting veterinarian. Because you cannot send in these samples without an acting vet. So we're saving you the $80 to $100 fee of actually physically going to a vet. And you can can diagnose your snakes uh, at home. And then if those tests come back negative, because I always say that doing a viral test is, is the perfect place to start, but not the perfect place to finish if it's negative you'll want to go see a vet and you'll want to do your due diligence with your bacterial culture and stuff like that. If you get a negative, but you want to do that viral testing first. So you can go into your vet and say, Hey, we've done this. It's not viral. It's going to be bacterial. Let's figure out the proper medication to get it to work. So people think that that fee is expensive, but you're you're rolling a lot of stuff into that fee because you're also within that fee, including the, lab fee of running the test so you're kind of getting a three for one in there you're getting the the kit you're getting dr susan fogelson as your acting veterinarian and she's going to send you your results and take care of everything for you and then you're also getting the fee for the lab to run the assay mm-hmm. and the assay is run using Fishhead labs primers so the tests are very similar in the way that they're done so we can have confidence that they're, they're being done correctly and you're getting accurate results.
1: Yeah. That, that's really amazing. And yeah, I don't even, yeah, I don't think the fee is really that high because like you said, you're really getting a lot of value there. And if it's to save an animal or to, to protect your collection, it really does make a lot of sense. So I think that's, is there anything else about Nido that you wanted to mention before we move on from that topic? I think we really thoroughly covered it.
0: For sure. I think so too. Um, just make sure when you're bringing home an animal that you're quarantining and you have those proper procedures in place. We, we have to be doing this because it is rampant. It doesn't matter if it's the smallest breeder to the biggest breeder. You need to test that animal either way. And yeah. we've had pet keepers now. Uh, everything's on a confidentiality basis. So I can't really d- discuss it too much, but I've had a pet keeper with three ball pythons. That's it uh have two of her animals test positive. Wow. That is how prevalent this is right now. Please make sure you're testing your animals just as a precaution, factor it into the cost of buying the snake. It, it has to be a thing now. And make sure as well that you're discussing with the breeder prior to purchasing the animal what their protocols on nidovirus testing are because I think it's important. The tests do fall upon the buyer. It's hard for a breeder to test because within their collection, what if they test and the snake doesn't ship for two weeks and then, you know, they've done transmission and then the the person gets the snake and then it's positive. Like Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't make sense for the breeder to do it unless the breeder wants to do it for their own peace of mind. It falls on you as the keeper to make sure that the animal has that test and have it worked out with the breeder beforehand what they'll do if that animal ends up testing positive
1: so I guess that would be my last question on this topic is if someone so for example that pet keeper for let's say she's got three snakes, two of them test positive asymptomatically is the protocol from that moment euth- to, to euthanize them or or can this person say i'm going to keep them i'm not gonna i'm just I'm going to be aware that this could eventually become a symptomatic case and I also know that these animals could spread it to other animals, so I have to be careful in that. that extent
0: i'm so happy you brought that up actually um yeah so i'm always going to say i can't tell you what to do with your snakes that has to be on the individual keeper personally for any animal that is symptomatic i would say that there is already so much degradation of the lungs and that animal is already severely immunocompromised so i would say that humane euthanasia is the kindest thing that you can do for a symptomatic animal now, for an asymptomatic animal, so I sent you those two images, uh, one of a healthy lung and one of a lung that's compromised with Nidovirus. But with the healthy lung, we see the red tissue, everything looks great. And then in the lung that has Nidovirus, we see that thickening of the, the walls of the lung. And we see the mucus it's night and day. When you look at those two images. Now the hard thing for us to go one way or the other is that when an animal, even if they're asymptomatic, if they're NIDO positive, we don't know how much lung degradation they, they have until you do a necropsy and you can only do that when they've, when it's Mm post-mortem. So again, this is where i would love to have more research on this and more funding to be able to look at these things but it's a hard question uh obviously you have that factor of if the animal is symptomatic or sorry not symptomatic obviously you have that factor that if the animal is positive for nidovirus then it can transmit to every other snake in your collection. So if you're going to house a nido positive animal, uh, it needs to be separated even in another area of the house. All of your utensils and everything have to be specifically for that animal. And there has to be no interchanging between that animal and your others in the collection. And then as a secondary point to that, again, we don't know how much lung deterioration that animal has. So are you really doing it a favor by keeping it alive? Is it, you know, can it live for five or 10 years and be perfectly fine? Is it suffering? We don't have the answers to that. So it's, uh, that's where it's hard. And that's why I push disease prevention so much because I don't want to see this industry in a place where all we have are NIDO positive animals to choose from. I don't want it to be the norm that we're that we're housing a NIDO positive colony with a with a non-NIDO positive colony. Like this just shouldn't be a thing in dogs, in cats, in horses. When we take horses across the border, we do Coggins on them with dogs. We do. We have parvo like testing and stuff like that. I don't know too much about dogs, but eh. Uh, there's, there's disease prevention and testing and all of those things to make sure your animal is healthy. We need to be pushing that in the reptile hobby as well. Mm -hmm. If we don't like, here's where we're going to be with the amount of import and export of these animals, we're going to be where you just, don't know if you're getting a nido positive snake and the likelihood is going to be higher that you got a nido positive one than a nido negative and i don't want to see that
1: yeah yeah i think that that's perfectly summarized and disease prevention testing is the way the ticket out of this and the, the way to start climbing out of this mess and to prevent it from getting into a Uh, to a point where it's it's irreversible because that that's sort of the path that it could eventually get to where like you're kind of painting that picture where there's just no way out of it and like you said we have a a shed in the back that's for your nido snakes and then your regular snakes inside nobody wants that so i think that is fantastic i think we've gone over everything there i really appreciate you sharing all that information as well as you know putting the gears uh, in action to get the the testing lab here in canada as well and and for obviously the americans listening fish head labs which i'll also put in the in the show notes is a great place to get their animals tested too.
0: For sure. Yeah, for sure. And um one final note as well because I know that there will be breeders watching this and I've had uh, a lot of breeders ask me the same question that you asked. What about breeding a nido positive snake that's asymptomatic? And I have to say that's a terrible idea. I always tell them like you're putting um you're putting an incredible amount of stress on the animal breeding it in a regular scenario, let alone if it's a NIDO-positive animal. But we have to think about the ethics of doing this. Because even though all the babies will come out and they will not have the virus, what are the true ethics of breeding an animal that you know is sick, that you know isn't okay? And even if it's asymptomatic, you are increasing its chances of mortality by doing so. So I want to add in that I always tell breeders I do not recommend breeding your asymptomatic animals. I think that that can flip them heavily as well and create a symptomatic animal. And it, again, it has to be their decision, what they would do with that snake. Uh, But breeding it shouldn't even be something that's on the table.
1: Yes. And I think that is a perfect kind of springboard to move us into the next conversation is sort of the ethics of keeping and the ethics of breeding and, you know, I don't want to phrase this without attacking people, but ball, there's a lot of ball python breeders that do walk the line of ethics when they come to you know breeding. Like it's no surprise that somebody might consider doing you know t- making an asymptomatic positive nido test or a animal with an not with a negative animal just in order to sort of push to try to get a special morph. We we see that all the time with spider, all these different morphs that we know have ethical issues to them. So it's no surprise that you can kind of throw that into the hat as well of ethical questions when it comes to breeding snakes and yeah. ball pythons are always the most extreme example because of the the amount of morphs that are on the table and because of the amount of people actually keeping and breeding them there's nothing wrong with keeping and breeding ball pythons i'm not saying that at all but there's a huge volume of people doing it which means this can be the highest number of ethical questions that arise from that that scenario so why don't we talk about how you keep, how you, you know, you already talked about how you got into keeping them, but what was your mindset as far as, you know, going with larger enclosures and and keeping them in a different way? And maybe we'll, we'll just start with that.
0: Okay. Yeah. So originally when I first started, as we talked about, I had the typical pet keeper setup, which was the 36 by 18 by 18 exoterra. And I have tons of videos of, you know, how to set those up properly from when I did have those enclosures but they are not the proper way to house a ball python. They might be okay for another species. I can't comment on that because I know nothing about any other species besides ball pythons, but they are not okay for a ball python. And it's unfortunate because with pet keepers, that's really all that they're offered at pet stores is the glass tank. Mm -hmm. And they go in there, they get their glass tank, they get their Aspen, their little stick on analog gauge. And they get their under tank heating and their habalog, which is going to mold in the amount of humidity that your snakes need, but it doesn't mold because you're keeping them on aspen. And you've got like one hide in a water dish. And I call this the pet store special because that's just what we see across the board. And I feel like breeders just feel like all the pet keepers are like this. They have such a negative connotation of pet keepers because with breeders i believe that they're the majority of the negative experiences that they have are with pet keepers because they sell them an animal they put them in these enclosures and it just doesn't turn out right <laughs> because you're not meeting the animal's requirements so when i did glass tanks uh, i had three glass tanks set up and then i ended up getting a 41 quart rack and this was my first experience with a. Uh, I would say that it's a smaller rack system, and most breeders would consider that pretty large, but I only use the the forty one court racks, and that's the smallest that I have as something for quarantine or uh to put them while I'm cleaning out their larger enclosures
1: do do you so, roughly do you know the dimensions of a forty one court i'm I don't know if I can picture it is it like would it be like uh, not even two feet long or
0: Oh my God, dude, I don't know. We, we should like put it in the, in the, like, just put like a little, uh, like a thumbnail. I'll I'll put
1: a little photo of one in the, in the, in the video. And for those who are just listening on audio, your goal after this is just Google 41 court. I'm sure lots of people have it in their head, but I just don't. So we'll, uh, people can do do that on their own time to figure out how big they are, but they're not, They're, they're not huge
0: they're not huge. They're, they're not huge by any means. There's, there's room for one hide in a water dish in there essentially. And, um, so that's what I had. I had three exoteros and then I had, um, my second enclosure was this 41 quart rack. And I did keep snakes in there full time. In addition to the ones with the glass tank and the 41 quart rack, it held humidity really well. Um, and it was perfect in that sense, but I felt like the animals just had nothing to do. They were just sitting at the back in their one little hide. And I noticed um, that we would actually start to get problems with the animals too, with them rubbing their faces. Like we see with retics and stuff that are being kept in smaller spaces, they face rub because they're not content in there. And we Mm -hmm. had a lot of face rubbing and stuff going on with, with the 41 court. And breeders chalk it up to being normal. They say, oh, you know, this, that's normal for the snakes. They're in breeding mode, they're this. It's, it's not because we don't see that behavior in my, in my large tubs. So the glass tanks I wanted to ditch purely because uh, they don't hold humidity well. And I feel like they're not the optimal environment for a ball python. I also don't believe that 36 by 18 by 18 is uh, adequate space for an adult ball mm-hmm. python. And that's considered a 40-gallon breeder. So that's what most people would push. And no, I wouldn't. Uh, when Jubjub was in there, he could definitely use more space. When Cinnamon Bun was in there, he could use more space. Every single animal that I've ever had in that size of enclosure has utilized every square inch of that enclosure and can use more space. So I got rid of the glass tanks and we started talking with Freedom Breeder. And I saw their, their racks that they market for BOAs. And I said, what an interesting concept that would be. Because really, the, a, a PVC is pretty much the same as a tub. We have two inherent differences with that. Number one, in the tub, we have under tank heating versus overhead heating so with with a pvc we're typically heating with a radiant heat panel whereas in my big freedom breeders uh we're heating with insulated stainless steel uh panels that go underneath Mm -hmm. so does it come with that uh we insulate the insulating them was extra and we increased the size of them as well okay uh, we kind of had to make some modifications to what they have because these snakes are smaller and they're sitting in designated spaces. So I wanted to make sure that almost the entire one side of the Freedom Breeder enclosure has heat. Right. So um, and then the other main difference that we have is that in a rack system, you can't provide UVB, whereas in a PVC, you you can So, but everything else is pretty much the same. Like it's a box versus a box. Just sizing is different. And I had been in this industry for about three or four years at that point, because we got the Freedom Breeders in September of 2020. And there's just a war. There's a war happening in this industry with the pet keepers versus the breeders. And it's always tubs versus tanks. And I said, wouldn't it be an interesting concept to bridge that gap between the breeders and the keepers? And I said, let so I talked with Jesse at Freedom Breeder and I said, let's go to work and create this space with the correct heat panels, the correct ventilation, everything like that so that we could take these big freedom breeder bins and we're taking the 66-4s. So they're uh, approximately 50 inches wide by 30 inches deep by 10 inches high. And we're taking these and we're setting them up like a PVC enclosure would be. And I'm the first person to ever do this in, in the industry. And I thought what an interesting trial it would be considering that we have so many breeders telling me that these animals won't thrive in there. They're going to go off feed. Let's do it on, on a scale that's manageable, but more than like one to two snakes, because usually if, usually when we're talking with pet keepers and they say that this snake will work in a PVC they're they have different size PVCs, their temps and humidity might be a little bit different. This is consistent. This is consistent temps, consistent humidity across the board with nine ball pythons. And I said, let's do it. Let's see how they react in this environment and we'll set them up correctly. And we'll see, right? So, like, did you buy a
1: rack with 10, 10 enclosures in total or, or, or like five and five? Or, or what did you we end up have? We have a five and five.
0: Okay. So, okay. Um, they're both, they're each set up on their own HERP stats um, on their own thermostats. And we have a five stack and a five stack. So the majority of the boys are in the one stack and then the other one has three females and then tangerine at the very top, as we talked about, uh, Mm -hmm. earlier. So, yeah, we set them up. Uh, they've been in there from January 20 or sorry, from September, 2020 until now. So that's about two and a half years. And I still get breeders that'll come up to me at the expo and they'll say, Wow, I can't believe they're eating in there. If they weren't eating in there, they'd be emaciated. They'd be dead. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, been, it's been two and a half years. Like, oh, it's it's, it's
1: kind of a shocking um, reaction to that, and that just shows you how 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 ubiquitous ubiquitous ubiqui- no ubiquitous i i why am I not saying that we're right ubiquitous ubiquitous I think that's right anyway how pervasive that sort of mindset is is that these animals need small enclosures and small tubs and whatnot we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit because I think you have a, an interesting theory on that too but uh, tell me a little bit about how the like you said breeders are coming up to you how are they reacting are you getting lots of messages or or what was as you did this experiment, were you expecting to get reached out to by breeders and people saying that this isn't a good idea or 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 how did that work out?
0: Not really. Honestly, I kind of just thought I was doing my own thing. Um, okay. So we have each of these enclosures set up and, and I'll send you videos to put into this video with around um, four to five hides per bin. So this is more than enough. And mm-hmm. I always say a larger space isn't going to work if you set it up incorrectly, but if you do everything to meet the animal's needs, it's going to be a very rare occurrence where a larger space isn't going to work. And you'll always have anomalies. That's always going to be a thing. You'll always have snakes that, that thrive, that don't thrive, but the majority of ball pythons will thrive in a larger enclosure. And I have a lot of breeders who contact me and they think that I'm doing the animals a huge disservice. They think that, um, it's inhumane how I keep them. And I would argue completely the opposite, that what I'm doing is, is interesting um, because we can see that they're thriving and they've really mentally unlocked since being moved in there. Two and a half years ago, I had snakes that were rack snakes for their entire life. They had never seen a hide before. And now those snakes are just out. They're chilling. They're like sitting there being being like, hi, (laughs) looking out their windows because these tubs have uh, big plexiglass windows at the front so they can see out. And those animals are now used to being in there. So it's the complete opposite because when I take them and put them in the 41 court to clean them, they hate it. Mm -hmm. and you can visibly see that they're stressed i have animals that don't want to eat in the smaller space now and i mean we can we can argue both ways and i get the breeders standpoint because they're here for productivity and i want to note that like I am not gonna sit here and hate on how the breeders do things because I run a small business. There has to be a certain level of productivity. And I will say that cleaning out these big enclosures and stuff like that's, that's a two person job and it takes a lot to do so. But it would be nice to see kind of that gap being bridged that I talked about and have not such a negative connotation towards someone who's doing things a little bit differently, but instead be like, oh, that's kind of cool. Let's increase our knowledge and learn about that as opposed to just immediately shutting it down.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's what I say. It's sort of a kind of a bizarre reaction to seeing that and almost getting sort of offended by it. And obviously now, luckily we're two and a half years I'm sure at the beginning it was probably stressful for you because you're getting messages from people telling you that you're doing something unethical, and you maybe you didn't have the data yet to back up your decision. You know, you're, you're kind of maybe going more off of your gut and off of your own intuition and hoping that it worked out. But now that you're two and a half years down the road, you have data to show that these animals have thrived, and, and maybe you could even talk about you. I know you did have an animal that failed in in one of those enclosures as well. So it's not like you're you are just having a, a A bias towards this working and sort of ignoring failures. So maybe you could talk about the failure.
0: For sure. So when I started doing this, I started keeping a recorded log and I'll send you a quick video of the the log book as well. And I started keeping a log book of uh, which snakes were eating, when the snakes were in shed, which ones would go off feed. And I wanted to match it because we had some snakes that went off feed, even in the 41 quart tubs, because they're just retired breeders. And that's you know, they had been bred every year. So that's what they were used to doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have all of this data that I've compiled over two and a half years in the booklet. And I also notate when I move them over to the 41 court and they don't eat, uh, which is sprinkles. We, mo- we just moved him uh, from the big freedom breeder into the 41 court and he went off feed immediately. He, he wouldn't even touch an ASF he just didn't want it and he was so stressed out and nervous uh of being in the 41 court and i uh, my feeding nights are on thursdays i just popped him back in the freedom breeder like 3 days ago and he ate like bam nothing
1: why no did you problem. move him back to the 41 in the first place
0: uh so because it's a process to clean out the bigger enclosures like we have to wash all the hides and then Kyle has to help me like lift them and stuff because they're so big um it just, it takes a lot of time to do that. And then Sprinkles was also in shed. So I just left him in the 41 court for a little bit longer. Cause I didn't want him to smell up. Like I just put all fresh substrate and stuff. Right.
1: Yeah. 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 Gotcha.
0: The snake that didn't work out, the snake that didn't work out was Popsicle. He was our dream sickle. So he came from a facility that uses uh, the blackout tubs with them. And I've noticed a distinct difference as well in animals that come from a blackout tub environment versus a clear tub environment. Even if they're the same size tubs, let's say 41 quarts, the clear tub snakes, they're able to see what's going on and they're able to have a day and night cycle and they're able to, to have some sort of normalcy in their daily routine. Whereas a blackout tub snake, they don't see anything. All they see is open the bin, throw a rat in, close the bin or in the the rare case that a breeder takes them out, takes pictures, whatever, that's it. That's the only interaction that they get. So I find that the the clear tub snakes are actually far more well-adjusted mentally than the blackout tub snakes. At least from me bringing in, in the small pool of nine to 10 snakes that I have, that's what we've seen across the board. This this is multiple animals. now Popsicle, he came from a blackout tub I'd had him since he was about 500 grams and we put him in the clear 41 quarts and he was fine. He he would eat. Uh, no worries. We gave him a hide in there and a water dish and he would eat. Put him in the Freedom Breeder. That animal went off like went off feed immediately. I only got him to eat once in the Freedom Breeder out of the entire time that I had him. And I had that snake for years. And no, he just wouldn't. He's an anomaly. And this is why it annoys me too, when the pet keepers come in and they say, well, I don't understand why your ball python isn't in this and why it doesn't have this. And I had one pet keeper actually trying to convince me that Popsicle would be fine if she had set up a bioactive four foot by two foot for him. And I said, no, he wouldn't. He would die. He, -hmm. he just would not eat in that. Like, there's no way. And I said, this is where we have to look at these animals as individuals. They, there is not a one size fits all. And I think that all of the Facebook groups like to push that, you know, not just a pet rock, they're terrible for it. I've, I've been kicked out of their group (laughs) um, because my racks don't have UV. Uh, But anyways, You know, they're terrible for it. If you have anything but their four by two, they're very intolerant of that. And then we have the breeder groups that if you're keeping your snake in anything, that's not like a 28 or 29 quart tub, they're intolerant of that. So it's very hard because we get all of this conflicting information. And with JubeJube and friends, that's why I'm trying to be um, educational, but be a happy medium between these two groups. I'm saying, look, we can do it this one way and we can make it work, but let's just expand our knowledge and do things a little differently to to push it working over here. This other group, we can do things your way too, but maybe let's provide some a little bit of enrichment and provide something for the animals just to give them something mentally like it shouldn't be a war. And popsicle is the perfect example. Same with sprinkles. On the other hand, we have two snakes. Popsicle will not eat in anything bigger than a 41-quart tub. He is actually at my... Uh, he was sold to my friends at Inked Lady Morphs because he he wouldn't work out here. Um, like, I, I'm not going to keep him forever in a 41-quart. They wanted him for their breeding projects, so now he's there. And they're one of the only breeders that actually provides their snakes hides and fake plants. And so I... I'm not like I'm personal friends with them. So I felt very good about him going over there to begin with. Um, Normally he wouldn't have even been for sale, but it made me feel extra good because they asked me what hide he liked, what, you know, what stuff he needed. And he's never missed a meal for them once Mm -hmm. he's been perfect because they set him up exactly the way that he needs to be set up. But then we take sprinkles on the other hand, who I put in the 41 court and he shuts down mentally. He, right. he just can't. Like he, he will not eat in there. If I were to leave him in there, he would die. So, yeah. it, It's interesting. There's there's always two sides of the coin, and I feel like people really get stuck on one side or the other, and you can't you got to just flip the coin based on the animal that you're dealing with.
1: Yes. And so I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. Every animal is different, and each, each are going to have a sort of a different array of stimulus that they can handle and, and what they can't. And I think also a really important piece of this is th- those early conditions that they existed in in those first probably six to 12 months of their life yeah. probably have a lot to do with shaping how they're going to respond for the remainder of their life. And if they're in a small, cramped, dark tub you you may be setting in stone an animal like popsicle for the rest of his life not being able to handle a larger enclosure so and so i i totally see your the the pet keeper like the sort of advancing side going put that animal in a larger enclosure and sort of force it down its throat to sort of have this enrichment and it doesn't always work yeah. but i i do also you see the other side too where i think as keepers of reptiles we are responsible to it, it, we're sort of obligated to try and help our animals get to the point where they can be in a large environment, because it is so important for their, their mental stimulation, their physical stimulation. Uh, you know, if they're going to live thirty years, you hope that this animal has the capacity to solve problems, simple problems, with its with its brain, and and be able to use its muscles in a way to, to grip things and and dig and burrow through the substrate and know how to use a hide and those sort of things. And you could create an environment early on in that snake's life that will sort of deprive them of that and then remove their ability to ever get to that point. And that's sort of a sad existence. But for someone like Popsicle, you, know, you can set him up in a way that he's going to thrive and he's going to have success and maybe it's too late to do anything with him, but he's happy and he's healthy and he's eating and that's all good. But t- t- to sort of get in front of that problem... We have to do better originally, and I, I think you're you're right about the the breeding side. Like we you get the productivity, and it, it makes sense. Like I and I I've said that before as well. My biggest pet peeve is breeders opening up their tiny, you know, little sock drawer, dark tub, and saying this is the pinnacle of care, and it's just not. But then yeah. they create this sort of self feeding. Uh, prophecy almost where they they take that animal and then it can only exist in that environment or else it fails and then they say well that's because that's just how all by bip- all, all bypath or all ball pythons are and that's just not true
0: yeah that's well that's exactly what i'm saying and you know i feel like now a lot of the times when Uh, people snakes do go off feed because I'm in um, a veterinary group on Facebook that I'm one of their approved contributors for ball pythons. So I see a lot of snakes go off feed due to husbandry. And this is purely pet keepers not doing their due diligence before they get the animal to set it up correctly. But I want to point out, it is not just pet keepers animals that are going off feed. And this is a huge point that no one talks about. But I just talked uh, with, a, with a large-scale breeder on the phone a few days ago. And we were talking about enclosures and talking about this stuff. And he said, I have snakes that haven't eaten in nine months. And I, and he said, they're not actively breeding. They just haven't eaten in nine months. And this, this is not just a thing with the pet keepers. I, I d- never want to normalize that it is... Uh, normal and a good thing for ball pythons to go off feed because I, I don't think that it's normalized in all scenarios. I have snakes that would literally, you could run them over with a car and they would still probably eat their <laughs> dinner. <laughs> like yeah. like Lucas, uh, he, he would do anything for a snack over there. But then you have Jube, Jube who the breeder uh, actually wouldn't even sell him uh, to me originally. We had to wait because he said Jube, Jube goes off food from January until March every single year. He said he was one of my original breeding animals. And I don't want you to receive him when he's not eating. And he's done that for me every year. And the breeder was keeping him in a, in a rack system. I kept him in an ExoTerra. He's now in a big PVC built by Focus Cubed. He, he does it every year. He goes off feed like in my feeding booklet, I, I have it all notated. And it's like January, bam, off the feed we go. And then March, oh, there's a rat in my face. I'm going to eat it. And I don't have very many snakes that go off feed, but Marshmallow is the same way. And I've talked with his breeder about it, who also keeps in clear tubs. He said Marshmallow always went off feed here for a few months. That This is just the cycle of when these snakes would be bred And what their inherent nature is in order to do. But I I always promote that we should not have juveniles going off feed. So a retired breeder is significantly different than pet keepers who are bringing home juveniles and saying this animal is not thriving and it's not eating. That should not be happening. That is always husbandry related. Um, there's, There's no way around that. You need to improve your uh, keeping and make that animal feel more comfortable. But at the end of the day for, if we're going apples to, to oranges here with, or I guess apples to apples, if we're going retired breeder, retired breeder, we're putting them in my larger space versus, uh, a smaller blackout tub at a, at a breeders. Um, those animals are probably going to go off feed the exact same, whether it be at, at my house or whether it be at the breeders, it doesn't matter. So I don't know why people always put it on the pet keepers that it's just our animals going off feed because it's not. And there's various factors that go into that too. Uh, weather being a huge one that nobody talks about. And people don't talk about it with substrate either. And I'm like, look, if you're in Florida, you could probably get away with using aspen because it's so humid there. But if you used aspen in Canada, you'd have terrible sheds every single time because we have our furnaces running and it's such a dry climate. And my friends in Georgia, they hardly have any snakes go off feed because they're in such a humid, perfect environment replicating what we would naturally see in sub-Saharan Africa. But in Canada, the snakes are kind of like, "What's going on?" <laughs> like, yeah. woo! it's yeah, too, yeah. you know, it's really weird out here." <laughs>
1: so. Exactly. Yeah, those are those are fantastic points, and it is it is a frustrating battle. Like you said, there is a war going on, and there really ought not to be because we are all reptile keepers, and the point is, is we all have the same hobby, and but there is this, you know, and I could I could imagine you can see why breeders might get upset at someone like you because they they would see. Um, the cutesy memes and the cute names, and immediately say, "Well, this person is treating an animal this like these snakes like a like a kitten or a, a baby," and yeah. uh, so so they probably write off all your credibility credibility immediately, right? They're not actually giving you any any benefit of the doubt, and then and because they have success keeping them, and I want to say they define success by their animals not dying, which is a pretty low bar for success, not dying and breeding.
0: Yeah, breeding. Two- uh, what is it? Eating, eating, uh, pooping, and shedding. That's yes. the that's the three, the three tiers. Eating, that's pooping the bar, and, and yeah. they
1: throw breeding on top of that. And those are all extremely base physical things that every animal is going to go through, like, I mean, reptiles, like you said, you could run them over a car and they're still going to still try to like truck along and because they're just these machines, right? They have this, they are ins- insanely durable for the most part. And so we can't set the bar that low, but they do. And, and they call, they call that success and they would look at someone like you with a, a cute name for their snake and think you're going to kill that animal. And now that you have all this data, do they respond well to the data or is it still this pushback is the same?
0: Um, it it's, it's kind of the same. So I was actually just talking with a breeder. Oh man, like four days ago. Um, because I, I reached out and they had made a few comments that they, they didn't like my content. And I said, okay, I said, I'm super open to knowing why. Like I'm such a huge person on communication. If you have a problem with me, I'd love to just talk it out. Cause usually we can resolve it. And I said, why don't you like my content? And they said, well, I've been keeping ball pythons for over 20 years. And they said, I don't like how, how you keep them. And I said, okay. I'm like, well, can you elaborate on that? And they said, well, they're a ground dwelling species that likes being hidden all the time. So they said, I think that your larger enclosures aren't providing that for them. And I said, why do we, what do we think that they're doing in nature? Because, uh, I I like to make the little statement that the snakes didn't originate in the ARS rack. Yeah. <laughs> like no, uh, there's true. a meme <laughs> online with the, the ARS rack like shoved into a termite mound. Yeah. I've seen <laughs> that. I've <laughs> seen that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I'm like, look, that's it's not the case. If we look at termite mounds, they're very large. And yes, ball pythons are a crepuscular, ground dwelling species. I am not of the mindset that these animals are arboreal. Uh, I argue with that. I think that these animals will uh, do things to survive uh, that they normally wouldn't. Do they enjoy climbing uh, low-hanging branches? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but are they perching up on a branch like a green tree python? No. Look at the body structure of these two animals. They're, they're not remotely the same. Mm. So I think that... Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, disinformation on both sides that ends up happening. But he was saying, you know, that uh, because they're ground dwelling and because they like being in a little hole, that the hide uh, or the the tub acts as their hide essentially. And I said, well, I'm pretty much doing the same thing. I'm just giving them freedom of choice as to which hide they'd like to use. And I said, this is where it comes in that if you do a larger enclosure and you put one hide in a water dish in there, you're gonna fail every single time. If you do a larger enclosure where you have thermal gradients, you have humidity gradients, and you have multiple different hides, fake foliage, all of that stuff so that the animal can feel secure, you're going to win almost every time because we're going to see those anomalies, but the majority of ball pythons will thrive in that. And we talked about this a little bit, uh they never really commented back to me on how they felt about me explaining it but um you know it's okay not everyone's going to agree with me and that's fine i'm just offering a different way to do things that's beneficial to the animal because at the end of the day i I don't really care how many people uh don't like me online people aren't really my thing i'm here for the snakes yeah. And my snakes are happy, they're healthy, they're doing what they need to do. Trust me, they poop and they shed. <laughs> and I, don't, uh, I do not have stuck sheds ever. There's not a time where I have to, to soak my snake for stuck sheds, not ever. And that's with providing a humidity gradient of it being more humid on one side than the other. The snake chooses where it wants to go. If it's in shed, it'll go to the more humid spot. My animals are completely healthy, just like, you know, breeders will argue that their animals are completely healthy. I don't think that there is a right or wrong way to do things between the two, the two communities. I just think that we need to be more accepting of how everyone is doing things. Because if, if we're not consistently elevating our knowledge in this industry, what are we doing? We're supposed to be here bettering ourselves for the animals because that's why we're all here, isn't it? We, we love the animals. And I feel like if we just stay stuck in that mindset from 20 years ago that the, the, the rack with the small tub is the end-all be-all, we're not advancing our knowledge in the slightest. Mm-hmm. Everything is just staying status quo. And whether it works out well or whether it doesn't work out well, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo in order to get a little bit further.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right, and quite often that's the that is the sort of line of reasoning that they'll use to say that it works because this is how we've been doing it for thirty years. But my response to that is name one other thing that we've been doing the same for thirty years that you know everything evolves, and it, it is our duty to make sure that we're providing the best we can for the animals and it, you know 30 years ago that's we thought the animals were quite basic but now 30 years later we actually understand that there's a capacity to problem solve there's there there is a a need to provide mental stimulation to these animals whether if you have an animal that does not thrive in a larger environment give them some something to investigate some sticks some leaf litter whatever it is because we need to be ma- making them think and making them work and it's important yeah. for their their overall their their health and and you know you're, you'd mentioned that there's actually there is an academic study that shows if you provide more hides, you see the animal more because the animal becomes more confident going out because if they walk out into or slither out into this barren environment with one hide, they're yeah. not they're not going to be wanting to do that. They want to be able to know that there's security along the way. And I, I was just recently this sort of dawned on me because I'm looking at people who keep tarantulas, and most tarantula keepers are very uh, whether this is right or wrong, they see the animal, the, the spider, as very basic, a very basic creature intellectually, or, or you know th- their their ability to think and problem solve is very basic. But even they provide more enrichment for their spiders than a lot of ball python people provide their ball pythons. And I think every ball python keeper would put their snake at a higher level cognitively than a spider. But most spider, I've never seen a spider kept on paper towel. They all have. A, Enough substrate to allow them to burrow, or or sticks and whatnot to allow them to pin webs, and allow them to manipulate their environment in the way that they would in the wild. And if if the spider keepers are doing that with and admitting that the spiders are very basic, then what are we doing on this side? Why 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 can't we budget over? And I I think the sad reality is a lot of people ball pythons are very addictive, and the morph breeding is addictive, and the money that you could potentially make is addictive, and. Mm. Breeders admit that there's a lot of breeders that say they're in it for a hundred percent the money, and I think that is an ethical issue that we need to sort out.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. And and I'm not sitting here. I would never sit here and say that breeders need to have the same setup that I have. That would be unfathomable. Mm -hmm. It's not uh, a reality that can happen unless you're doing it on a very small scale. uh, Like if I ever bred and I had like one clutch or something, sure. But. The reality is uh, that's it, it's just too much maintenance, but we can do things uh, like Inked Lady Morphs does where, you know, they have that hide for Popsicle who, who's a snake that doesn't thrive in a larger enclosure, but they still give him his hide, his little plant, his water dish. And they do that with the majority of their snakes. And we, we can just do things to elevate the quality of their life more than what you're saying. The, paper towel in the box. Because I think that that it's just being lazy. And when when you can't even like you're not even providing substrate for them. It's just it's ease of cleaning. But is that right? No, like this is a living sentient being and they're a lot smarter than people give them credit for. Actually, Uh, Lucas, um, I'll, I'll send a video, but we've we've operant conditioned him to bounce for food. He he's just like bouncy bounce. And it's not him being a spider. It's nothing neurological with him. Um, because when they're, they're spiders, they wobble or they corkscrew. Mm -hmm. And he, he maybe has a little bit of a wobble, but not much, but when he thinks that it's feeding time, because I always used to wiggle my finger at him like this, and he would start to move his head because as soon as he would do that, I'd give him his rat. And now when we open the tub, he just, bounces, (laughs) bounces, <laughs> because he, th- he thinks that he's getting fed. So he's like, if I bounce, I'll get fed faster. Now, is that a good thing for me to teach him? Probably not, because all we see is him bouncing now at night. <laughs> but, you know, they're smarter than people give them credit for. And every time I go in, in my reptile room, we have the uh, Zoo Med large reptile shelters that are all on their hot side. And the animals enjoy being able to see out and and see what's going on. It doesn't stress them out at all. And I'll see like a sea of noses just sitting with their little like faces, or uh, you know they'll be sitting with their heads out, kind of just enjoying being, just enjoying being. And they like when we walk by. They they always look at us like we're giving them food or whatever, and. I think that there's a lot of mentality that ev- everything's gonna stress them out and then they're gonna get sick and then they're gonna die. And it's like, they're hardier they're than, you, than you think. They're not gonna die from you walking past their enclosure. If they feel secure, they'll show you that they feel secure. And all of my animals are extremely happy. Uh, they're all out, they're, they're active at night, uh, switching hides, just like what you talked about. And they do the things that snakes do. And we should be allowing our snakes in captivity to do the snaky things. We shouldn't be confining them.
1: Yeah, I, exactly. And, and I think, you know, some people might hear the story of uh, Lucas bouncing and go, well, that's bullshit. Like, you're it's just, it's made up. Like, there's just no way that's true. But, you know, any, you know every, anybody who has a fish tank knows what happens when you walk up to a fish tank all the fish they come to the surface
0: like, yeah,
1: because <laughs> yeah. they have now been conditioned that when the big shadow is in front of the glass, the food comes from the sky and yep. that, everybody knows that goldfish, it doesn't matter what it is. So it's completely conceivable that any animal has some level of conditioning. And we've seen that. I mean, we talked about it in this podcast a ton of times with being able to train and target train snakes, people target train lizards and target train crocodilians and target train snakes. It's all, they all have the ability to do that. And, and it, it can be an inconvenient truth to know, that they are capable of of uh, higher level problem solving than we thought, and it can be yeah. inconvenient. But like you said, it's not a it's not a request to have the breeders keep their animals in giant enclosures because a lot of those animals uh, the, the the juveniles get sold six months later, and then they can be put into uh, a you know, a habitat or an enclosure that makes sense for that species. So yep. the, that pushback from the breeders to see people keeping them is that that's the bridge we want to gap, right? We're not saying to the breeders, I mean, some people will say that, and I think there is an argument to, to, to get the breeders to do more, uh, but we don't even necessarily need to go down that path. It's just about stop telling people that a tiny cramped black pitch black box is the pinnacle of ball python care.
0: Correct. Yeah, just it, it shouldn't be toted as the optimal way to keep them. And also, the like, the way that I keep them, uh, for example, shouldn't be looked upon as something uh, negative. And it's crazy, you know. We, I know that we weren't really going to talk about this, but we can a little bit. There, there was a podcast that just came up, um, and their number one thing that they called me out for uh, was. He was just like, oh, you know, she keeps in a four by two. You know, you heard it right here on said podcast, like F you. And I'm like, are you okay? Because one of your sponsors actually built that enclosure. (laughs) So like this is what this is what pet keepers are buying, though. And I have pet keepers, uh, someone who who uh, lives a half hour away from me. They just bought my exact same Freedom Breeder setup for for their pet ball pythons. They have three snakes, and they bought my Freedom Breeder setup. Um, I know countless people who have went to Focus Cubed for their big enclosures for their ball pythons. So when we sit here and we start like trashing on and segregating uh, a portion of the industry, it's a really bad look because this is an economy. Breeders need pet keepers. You guys can't just all be out here trading your snakes amongst each other forever. That doesn't work. You need the trickle down effect in the economy. And when you sit here and, and you degrade and you segregate a certain group of people, just because honestly, you don't like the way that they keep it's, it's founded in nothing. It's founded in a, a personal bias because they've been in the industry for however long and blah, blah, blah. But when you do that, it looks really, really bad (laughs) and it's not welcoming. And we need to welcome more people. And I'm trying to do breeders a favor. I'm trying to take your pet keepers that bought your animal that isn't working out in their glass tank. And I'm on the phone with them. I'm not getting anything out of this transaction, but I'm on the phone with these pet keepers going, here's what you need to get here's the thermostat, here's this, let's make the enclosure better. If you don't have people like me doing this for for the industry, where do these people go? Mm -hmm. They're just gonna feel lost in the sea of information that is so vastly different for every single person that's, that's like a sounding board for this info. Because you have one person telling you the four foot by two foot, you have the other person telling you the small rack, and then you have the person in the middle who like they're telling you something completely different so yeah. it's it's frustrating
1: yeah no i think and yeah and the the bridge needs to be gapped gapped and or the yeah the gap needs to be bridged i should say and <laughs> and i think you're you're totally right i mean the what will happen if we continue to segregate that is the breeders will be uh, and i don't i don't want to keep using the word breeders as like a derogatory term because there's some incredible breeders out there whether it's yeah, ball save, pythons save. or anything like yeah. it's it, it there, there's some amazing people working with some incredible species and i think so many people sunk their teeth into ball pythons and, and rack systems that they don't know how to shift out of that and there's i think there's so much more potential there for some of those people but what will end up happening especially you know the, the individual that you mentioned that was telling you to f off or fu because of the four by two Those types of closed-minded individuals will find themselves in a small bubble trading snakes with each other because despite the fact that they make the claim that they are the be-all and end-all of our hobby and that without them there would be no hobby, that is actually wrong. The people who are producing the huge amount of animals for the pet trade make those breeders look tiny. Yeah. tiny you know the, the 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 big breeders the big massive warehouse of breeders in the states are producing in a week what those people which those people might do in two or three years of, of time or you know even more so we it's it's not that we don't need them it's that if they continue to push back on just the basics of ethical keeping they're going to find themselves in a place where they're going to be trading bins and corkscrewed snakes with each other and that's it
0: And and NIDO-positive animals, too. Um, (laughs) That's right, yeah. That's the thing. Like The God complex is very strong in some individuals. And and it's the same when I say breeders. I'm not saying it in a derogatory way, either. I'm I'm just using it as a... Same with, like, keepers. I'm just saying it as a... um, Sorry, my coffee maker. Uh, (laughs) I'm just saying it as a... um, Descriptor. As a statement. As a statement. And look we can't have a God, God complex in an industry where we should always be furthering our, our knowledge. And like me, for example, so back a few years ago, I had never had a big breeder female. Madam S'mores was one of my first females, but I got in a big breeder female and I didn't know what to feed her because uh, she You know, I didn't want her to be on the typical breeding schedule. Uh, She didn't need to bulk weight on because I'm not breeding her. She's not going to become concave after she lays. So I asked in a group, I said, what what would you guys recommend feeding this snake? So she gets enough nutrition, but yet I'm not overfeeding her. And then I had someone very recently actually bring that up to me. And they said, well, why would you need to ask that if, if you know everything about ball pythons? And I said, I have never once said that I know everything about ball pythons. Absolutely, I do not. I'm learning stuff every single day, as should everyone who's watching this and listening to this. Mm -hmm. Um, I said, you know, asking questions should never be something that you get humiliated for. And... Um, I'm not one to coddle people on Jube Jube and friends. I know a lot of Facebook groups, they they don't want you to be mean at all. Like if someone's snake is emaciated and it's in terrible condition, you can't be mean to them or or whatever. I'm not going to be mean to you, but I'm going to be hard on you because one of the biggest things that I tote is you need to have your setup complete and ready to go dialed in before you bring your animal home. Mm -hmm. be responsible, be a responsible keeper. And there's a lot of impulse buying and I don't agree with it. And I will be hard on people when they come to me and they say, Oh, I've had the snake, you know, two months, here's its conditions. And I'm like, you messed up. This is not good. We need to rectify this, but then it's constructive and we move forward. And I'm like, here's what we need to do. Um, We're always learning. Everyone should be learning. It's just a facet of the industry. Yes. And people who sit up top and they just go, oh, well, you know, I'm up here and now everyone's uh, like, my son is beaming down on everyone. And they're a shadow in my godly presence. Like, are you okay? Like, <laughs> are you all right over there? Are you, Because I don't know what to say. Like that's, it, it's so um, egotistical and self-serving. Yes. And that's not how I like to do things. I get paid not a dollar to run Jube and Friends. I have a lot of people say, that or ask me um, because my some of my reels get like in the millions of views and stuff like that i have uh all the financial stuff turned off I, i don't gain anything from doing what i do the only stuff that i gain from it is the satisfaction of helping other people because i know that if i help them and they have a positive experience their animal is going to thrive And that's what I'm here for. I'm here for your animal. I'm not I'm not really here for you. I'm more so here for the animal. But I want people to be able to have a good time, feel welcomed in the industry and uh, have animals that are healthy and thrive. And if I can make people feel good and, and their snakes are doing well, then I've done my job. That's all I need to do.
1: Yes, yeah, and I, I think there's sort of an allure to people, you know, you seeing those sort of god complex individuals who have a, you know, they create a cool morph and they have really beautiful animals, and there's, and uh, they, they have this ever present knowledge, and people want to be that, so that's why you know you draw more people into that world. But I think, I think moving forward, what like what are some ways that we can. Speaking to breeders now, because uh, again, people who who want to continue to work with animals, and I, I want to say, there's nothing wrong with working with animals to make a profit. I have no problem with that. I have, I have, of, of course that you know everybody deserves to get paid for their time uh, for yeah. whatever they're doing. But when you are working with beings, there is an ethical. There is an ethical layer to it, and if, if you if you don't want to deal with an ethical layer, then you should sell T-shirts because yes. then you don't have to worry about. It. And maybe 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 I should clarify because you want, might want to look at where your T-shirts are made. But but you know,
0: <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> yeah, because that
1: could be a whole other can of worms. But but if you're if you're working with animals, you're working with creatures. There there is an ethical implication to what you do, and and as we've said several times, that that in that that motivation of getting better and improving the knowledge is just going to have to be that's an ever-present thread that has to run through your business it's just that that's a must so then as far as people who are working with animals and maybe they do want to have some cool morphs and breed ball pythons what are some things that we can like maybe we'll end on some more of like a positive note like what are what are some things that these people can do like right off the top of my head i think providing some form of mental stimulation in those tubs and 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 providing translucent tubs has got to be two of the keys i think
0: So I think that blackout tubs have a purpose for like an animal that's uh, like sprinkles. When he first came out and he was a failure to thrive, he was in a blackout tub just so he had no, no noise, no nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't think that they should be like pulled from the market or anything like that. They definitely have a use, but just not a a full-time use. I just don't. Yeah. Just not all the time. I I just um, I think that we need to, think of these animals as a little bit more than what they are and they're not just collectible pieces they're not pokemon cards that we're putting away in the pokemon card binder like they're they're living sentient creatures and to just have them in a in a small little blackout tub for their entire lives because we see breeding animals grow up from juvenile to to adult in that situation and you're right it's incredibly hard uh, to break them out of that mentality it's almost like a, a like a feral child or something that they've been kept in one way and then they see the world and it's just a shocker to them it's a shock to the system they've never had that so i think that normalizing clear clear tubs is a huge step in the right direction i really like clear tubs they at least give them a sense of a day and night cycle and they let them like see the people walking by and just having a little something in their day. Um, The other thing I would love to see more breeders uh, do hides inside of the the tubs. I know that a lot of breeders state that the tub is their hide. I don't really agree with that being a great thing. I I think that the animals should have choices and be able to make choices because that mentally stimulates them. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't just be, oh, I'm curled up in the back corner in my cocoa blocks Co- um, that's a brand. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's a brand. Um, I'm not crapping on Cocoa Blocks. It's like it's Cocoa uh, Husk, let's say, okay, at the back. Yeah. I'm like, oh God, <laughs> the Cocoa Husk, okay, whatever brand you want, it, it shouldn't, this, the animal shouldn't just be buried back there in the Cocoa Husk and have nothing. And the only stimulation it gets is you putting a live rat in. Now, Another thing that I want to touch on, too, is I really like breeders who get their animals on frozen thawed, and we have to think into the future for these animals, because feeding a live rat, and this is without mentioning, obviously, the the dangers of feeding live, but I don't care what you feed. If you feed live, cool. If you feed frozen thawed, cool. But another thing is, it's much better for breeders to get their snakes on frozen thawed because of the aspect of those snakes eventually moving into a larger space because when we're dealing with a rat inside of a a smaller tub cool it doesn't really have anywhere to hide the snake can find it bam it's done but when you try to put a rat inside of like an enclosure my size that rat is significantly smarter than that snake and all it's going to do is just your snake's never going to find it Mm -hmm. it's awful So my pro tips for breeders would be just try to do a little bit more for your animals. Just try to elevate a little bit more and gain a little bit more knowledge as well. Even if you're not keeping in a PVC or something like that, it's still good to have the knowledge about how that's done because then you can transfer that knowledge to the customer so that they're in a better position to keep your animal. Number two would be trying to get them on frozen thawed because as a pet keeper myself, live just becomes a nightmare. The larger the rats get and the larger the snake gets, um, the the more of a nightmare it becomes to to feed that animal live. And we shouldn't be moving our animals to feed them. I know that a lot of people talk about moving them into a separate tub, don't do that. It just stresses them out. Uh, (laughs) Cage aggression is a myth, that's not a thing. Um, but it just makes everyone's lives easier. And number three is socialize your animals a little bit, you know, take that extra time to just kind of like, if you're going to change their water or something, like pick them up for a minute or just do something to get them ready for that end client so that they're not just the client gets them and they're like mm-hmm. at <laughs> yeah. their little heads, like ready to just stab you. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and for pet keepers, I'll give some advice to pet keepers too. Please, vet your breeders. Vet your breeders. Ask questions when you're going to buy your animal. If you're a first-time keeper, um, ask your breeder what the animal is being kept in, because you should be trying to replicate that the best you can, at least for the first month or two of that animal's life, just so it transitions well over to to your environment. Mm-hmm. Um so that it's eating and stuff like that and then you can start to branch out and do other things with it. Number 2, ask about temperament. If your breeder especially with an older animal, a juvenile, they're kind of eh, ass so whatever, but an older animal, if the breeder says a snake is a snake, they're not the breeder for you, pet mm-hmm. keeper, because they don't know what the temperament of their animal is which means they don't spend time with their animals, which means that you're not going to know what you're getting. If yeah. I'm buying an animal, especially an older snake, I want to know what I'm getting. I want the breeder to tell me that that's, a, oh, it's like a puppy dog, or like it's a nice animal versus it's, it's defensive, and it's probably not a good choice for you. The same as what the breeder did when I first reached out about Juju that should be the the first experience that you have is the positive experience coming into the industry and the third thing for pet keepers actually we're gonna have four the third thing is that you should viral test your animals um because that's just good practice to do to make sure that your animal is going to live a long time And the fourth thing is that you need to have your setup ready and you need to take it upon yourself to do your due diligence and have it set up correctly. Because when breeders get a negative connotation of pet keepers, it's because you took their animal, put it in the the pet special and it's not doing the things that it needs to do. You're frustrated. You portray your frustrations onto the breeder. And now they're frustrated because you're not keeping it in a rack system.
1: And they're tired of <laughs> answering the same questions over and over.
0: Yes, correct. It's a cycle. It's a yes. cycle. Just do your due diligence. Make sure the animal has its needs met. And then you will have your needs met because the animal will do what it needs to do. hmm
1: it, that's super well said. And, and the the cycle can be broken with both sides, the keepers and the breeders. And it's so paramount that we do that. We, we have pressures from animal rights groups. This is not a mystery to anybody. We see the US Arc stuff. The all, This is all coming down all the time. And as little as we like to admit it, there is an optics game that we must play. You, we must at least look like we're doing the ethical thing for these animals. And it, it needs to be, when you look at from from an outsider's perspective, looking at herpeticulture, it should go. People should look at it, and go, oh wow, that's amazing. Those people really care about those animals, and they're keeping them properly, and the animals are thriving. It shouldn't. They shouldn't look at our hobby and go, this is disgusting and sick, and we, we need this needs to be stopped. And and I get a breeder's response might be that well, keeping them in a rack is the best way, but we, we do have to play this game a little bit. And even if you think that a piece of enrichment isn't going to do anything for your animal in a tub at least try it and see what happens and watch your animal. I always tell people that add a small stick into a tub and then watch what your animal does. And it will not take long for the animal to come investigate that item. And that yeah. should at least give you a little bit of indication that there's something more going on here. And when a person who doesn't keep reptiles sees an animal with a stick in there, it at least looks better. But also if you've seen that animal interact with the stick, then you know that there's something else going on. So it sort of helps both sides of it as well. And nobody wants to play the optics game, but we kind of have to, because we're being, there's pressure all the time. And as we've said many times, improving what we're doing is the name of the game here. And it's a must. And we need to look like we're improving the game.
0: I mean, let's, let's take a deep breath and pretend that we don't keep reptiles at all. We're, we're horse people. Okay. And we're (laughs) looking at a reptile enclosure. So if you put a a big four foot by two foot vivarium with all the like, even if they're fake plants or whatever, and it's, it's all decorated with the hides and the fake plants. And then you put beside the tub with the water dish and the paper towel, which one is, which one makes you go, Oh, the animal's having a better life. And this is not anthropomorphizing the animal. A lot of people like to say that too. It's not both like, it's not.
1: <laughs> yes. Both,
0: both of these things do they meet the animal's needs? Sure. But the one is exceeding the animal's needs. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want to strive for.
1: Yes. And the, yeah, there's a certain level of intuition that people have that they can understand when they're seeing an animal in an environment that looks a lot like you might find it in the wild rather than the, the plane is i remember f- seeing tubs for the first time on a on a youtube channel like leopard gecko thing and i and i remember being so mystified by it and and i i get what the breeders might think and like yes because you're looking at it from a naive perspective you don't understand how the animals work and this is really the best case for them but we know it's not we know there's more that we can do there and we should at least try to give ourselves a better poster when people are looking in and and people who don't keep animals are very intuitive and they'll look at something and go, well, that just something seems off about that. It seems weird that you have a hundred animals on a wall in a very plain scenario. It doesn't sit right with many people. And so that's where the optics game comes in.
0: And that's why we need to have different facets of the industry as well. That's, that's why we can't have people trying to push out one group because they, they favor the breeder group. That's fine. If you, uh, I'm not going to sit here. If you want to keep your snake in the racks, everyone's going to do it. Um, like I have my snakes in big, bigger racks. So, you know, everyone is, is going to keep differently and you're going to do it and that's fine, but you need those different levels of keeping, especially for people looking in or or thinking that maybe this is a hobby that they'd like to join. Mm -hmm. Well, do they want to join if they're, if the only option to them is, just a blackout tub where they can't even see the animal Exactly.
1: Like,
0: sure uh you're not going to see the animal during the day because as we said it's a crepuscular ground dwelling species but at night i see all of my animals i see every single one mm-hmm. and they like seeing out and doing things so we should provide them the things maybe not that makes them happy. Like, uh, again, it's putting emotions onto an animal that doesn't have emotions, but that that's fulfilling their needs and stimulating them in a positive way. Yes.
1: Yeah. I completely agree. I think we have really covered a lot here today. Is there anything else <laughs> that, that you wanted to mention before we officially wrap up? We've covered a lot of bases.
0: Honestly, I think I think that that's uh pretty good. Yeah, we've really <laughs> we really dove deep, man. We got it. We got it all in. So <laughs> Yeah, we did.
1: Well, Kayla, I really appreciate this. I appreciate not only you coming on the podcast but doing what you're doing and the work you're doing and having the the courage to experiment with your animals, which I think is super important. I think we need to have space for people to try different things. We often always get into this the, the grooves in the hobby run very deep, and if anyone tries to jump out of a groove, they get chastise on the internet and whatnot. And I think there's some courage that it takes to try something different and also be honest with it and document the experience. So thank you for doing that. And like I said, thank you for joining me. Is there, where can people find you and Jube and the friends online?
0: Uh, so we pretty much just have Instagram at this point, uh, which is at Jube the snack. Um, and we're at like 64,000 followers at this point. So come, come join our community Uh, I might do a YouTube at some point. I've had a few people pushing me to do it, but I'm so busy. Maybe I will, maybe I won't, but pretty much if you just want to follow along on the Instagram, it's a lot of cute snake photos with, um, informational stuff sprinkled in here and there. Uh, but one final point that I wanted to add on to what you're saying is just like I did with popsicle. And I want to make this very, very clear. If I ever saw that my animals were in distress or something isn't working for them, I will always shift my keeping to accommodate the animal. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a huge point that I wanna make because I've had a lot of accusations thrown my way from people uh, that think that it's just all about, you know, pro- proving me right or whatever. I try not to come off that way. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to do something a little bit different But just as we saw with Popsicle, he didn't work out, put him back in the 41 court. You're always going to have to shift around keeping methods and uh, do different things for different snakes. And that's just a part of being in in an industry with kind of weird animals. (laughs) That's right.
1: Yeah. It's part of keeping it's it's being being able to read the animal as an individual, as it was one of the very first things that you mentioned during the middle of this podcast, treating them like individuals and being dynamic and fluid with how you care for them based off of that specific animal. So I think that's a, that's a perfect point to wrap up on. So Kayla, thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation. All right, that is the end of that episode, Kayla. Thank you so much for jumping on an episode with me, and as I said at the end, thank you for willing being willing to sort of take the risk and have have the courage to do an experiment and share your data with the community and and really expose yourself to some of the quote unquote hate that comes your way because you're testing things in a different way, you're not doing things the conventional method. And I think that's the type of person we need in the community to lead the way and try new things. Again, it's all an aim towards making the lives of the animals better, and clearly that's what you have as a a goal, and I think most people listening to this podcast will have the same thing. Of course, people are going to have problems with it. People are going to hate certain ways of doing things if it's different, but what there's nothing we can do about that. That's just the way people are, and some people like to stay set in their ways, and as I said through the intro, any of the links or testing facilities and websites that Kayla had mentioned through the podcast, I will make sure that's all in the show notes, so if you are looking for that, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. Just click on the Animals at Home podcast header, and you'll find this episode, again, episode Episode number 145. If you're listening to the audio platform on Spotify or Apple, feel free to give us a rating or a review. That really does help the podcast a lot. And again, if you are listening to the audio version, you may want to dial back when you have time to the YouTube version just to flip through and see some of the photos that Kayla shared with us, or just go visit her Instagram page because most of the pictures and whatnot that she shared on the podcast are from her Instagram page itself, so that's an easy way to do that as well. Thank you so much to Custom Reptile Habitats for sponsoring this podcast. I do really appreciate your support. There is affiliate links in both the YouTube description and the show notes, and again, if you make a purchase, a small commission comes back to me. If you're interested in supporting the podcast in another way, you can do that over at patreon.com slash animals at home. There you can join us on discord and join the conversation with other keepers and people who listen to the podcast. It's always a blast on the discord server. So I really would appreciate that if you wanted to check that out. And is that it? I always forget now. I always forget if I'm done. I think that is the end. Uh, I think that's all I have to say Anyway, Thank you so much to Kayla. Thank you to the listeners. I really appreciate you listening to the show. Share this one. This is one that I think is really important to beginners, people who are just getting into the hobby too, just to have this conversation. It's a really sort of raw conversation about some of the issues we're having in the hobby. And I think it's one that many people should hear. So sharing it would be greatly appreciated. And I will catch you in the next episode.